Oh, our Father, how firm a foundation you've laid for our faith in your excellent word. Likely we do not understand it as fully as we should. Uh, Do not take the joy and confidence from it that we should. Do not yield to its power as we should. Turn the light on for us in our hearts today, we pray, by the powerful movement of your spirit to your glory, for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, this is our second part in Basic Bible Truths Revisited, something we're doing every few weeks uh, in uh, alternating with our studies in Matthew. And we're basically following the shape of our church's statement of faith. And this is where the statement of faith starts, with a statement about the Bible. Well, where should it start? Is that the right place to start? You might think, well, it should start with God, right? Because God is uh, without which nothing. Uh, No God, no nothing. No church, no faith, no anything. Or should it start with Christ? Because he's the focus of the Bible. Or should it start with the gospel? Because without the gospel, we've no relationship with God. We've just got an expectation of wrath and of hell. But instead, it starts with a statement about the Bible. Is that the right place to start? Well, we start with that question, Roman numeral one, the right place to start, question mark, is the Bible the right place to start? Not just for our statement of faith, but for our own thinking in our own lives, is the Bible the right place to start? Megachurch pastor Andy Stanley says no. Somebody comes up to him and asks him why should he become a Christian, he says one thing I'm not going to do is start with the Bible. He's going to start somewhere else, he says, because the Bible is not something you want to hook your wagon to and not something where you want to start in talking to an unbeliever. Well, what's the truth of the matter? The first truth of the matter, Roman numeral, sorry, capital letter A in your outline, everyone starts somewhere. Everyone starts somewhere. Most people would not notice that. They would not admit that. They're not even aware of that. But everyone starts somewhere. What I mean is nobody is truly neutral. Nobody has no biases or prejudices or assumptions. Absolutely everyone starts someplace. Let me explain. A great many people would say, oh no, I'm neutral. I'm I'm completely objective. And you want to talk to me about God? Well, then you've got to prove to me that the Bible is the word of God using only scientifically measurable methods and reason without any assumptions. And if you do that, well, then I will believe in the Bible. Problem with that, it assumes that human reason is king. It assumes that the only way to know truth is by reason. How do you know that? Well, likely the person will give you a bunch of reasons for that. But wait a minute, (laughs) that's begging the question. You haven't proven that reason is the only way to arrive at truth. You're just assuming that reason is the only way to arrive at truth. Well, then they say, no, what I mean is only scientific method, only things verified by the scientific method. Fine. Now I have another question. How has the scientific method verified that it's the only way to know anything? That's never been verified by the scientific method. You see, we start someplace. We start with the conclusion, really. Because if you allow someone to start that place, well, then you might as well stop because the discussion is over. You've already decided what the conclusion is going to be. The conclusion is going to be human reason is king. The conclusion is going to be scientific method is the only method to test truth. Because that's where you started. So, everyone approaches 
everything with assumptions. So the question, of course, is which one is the one we should start at? Where should we really start? Now here I remind you of something the Lord Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount that has many applications. Matthew 6.24, what did he say? Matthew 6.24, he said, No man can serve because he'll either hate one and love the other or vice versa. No man can serve two masters. Well, that has many applications, and this is one of those applications. You can't have two starting places. You can't have two ultimate truths. There, there isn't a possibility to have two most important things. There can only be one most important thing, only one starting place. So, What's, what does the rationalist often say? Well, I believe that only reason uh, is king because that's what Richard Dawkins says or some authority. But wait a minute. If you believe that because Richard Dawkins says, then that's not where you start. You're starting with him. You're starting with a respect for effort, experts or something like that. If you say, I believe this because of this, well, the because of this is what is your real ultimate starting place. Reason isn't the real starting place in that case. This authority who told you that reason is the only starting place is the only starting place. And without him, then you've just got the assumption that human unaided reason is the only place to start. And you, you assume that, well, then there's no point talking about a word from God because you've just excluded it by your assumption. But now here many Christians would come in believing that they're saying the right thing, but really... Uh, destroying their own witness, destroying their own case, uh, sawing the tree out from under them, or the branch that they're sitting on at any rate, they'll say, well, I start with the Word of God because that seems the most reasonable to me. Or I start with the Word of God because of all these evidences that point that way. Or I start with the Word of God because that's what my church teaches. But you see, in all of those, you're not starting with the Word of God. You're starting with reason, you're starting with evidences, you're starting with an assumption of the authority of the church. So this is something we really have to think hard about. Do you really start with the Word of God? Well, where should we start? Now, here's the unassailable fact of the matter, letter B. God says where to start. This is not something the Bible does not speak to. It's something to which the Bible directly speaks. God says where to start. He says it for the simplicity's sake today, we will see that he says it by description, and he says it by prescription. Let me show you what I mean. Number one, he says by description, all you have to do is turn to the first chapter of Genesis, one of the easiest books to find, so join me there. So Genesis chapter one, and we have our first example, and that first example is Adam. That's nice. You just have to put two letters in that blank. A.D., Adam. Genesis 1, 26 through 28. We'll lift out part of it. Verse 26, Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness, so that they will have dominion over all of the animals in creation. <clears throat> then verse 27 says, God did do that, created man in his image. Now focus on verse 28. God blessed them and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. So the first voice they hear is the voice of God speaking the words of God. 
The first voice they hear is the voice of God speaking to them with the authority of God as Lord. You read the same thing uh, repeated in tight close-up in chapter 2 when God creates Adam. The first voice he hears is the voice of God. So that is literally where our race started its thinking. Because Adam is the head of our race. He's the first man. And he started his thinking hearing the Word of God. The Word of God who came to him telling him who he was and what his place in creation was and what his reason for existence was. Now, are these questions that still concern us today? Who are we? Why are we here? What's our purpose for life? Well, all of that came to Adam from the Word of God, starting with the Word of God. God, his Creator, spoke words to him that conveyed those truths to him. And so those words come and convey God's will, God's wisdom, and also God's lordship. Because these words come to Adam with the authority of God. God does not say, now of course I know before I say anything I need to perform some magic tricks or I need to lay out some philosophical proofs or something like that. No, God simply comes up as God and speaks as God and his creature hears him as God. And everything goes great as long as he does that. But then there's chapter 3. Something for another sermon. That's the first example, Adam. Second example is Abram. You just have to put three letters in that blank. A-B-R. You say, oh, isn't that Abraham? Oh, well, then if so, I got you. Because he's not Abraham until chapter 17. (laughs) And we're looking at chapters 12 and 15. And I mean to be accurate. So Genesis chapter 12. You're near it. Turn to it. Genesis chapter 12. We've read something of the genealogy of Abram. And then we read, And Yahweh said to Abram, Go forth from your land and from your kin to the land where I will show you. And then he makes a series of promises to Abram. And then in verse 4, So Abram went forth as Yahweh had spoken to him. Now look at that, <clears throat> that bracketing there. Yahweh said to Abram, Go forth from your land. So Abram went forth as Yahweh had spoken to him. So again, God takes the initiative. God, as it were, parts the curtain and speaks to Abram. Abram does not discover God. He does not reason his way to God. He doesn't slowly evolve his way to God. God comes to him. God speaks to him. He speaks his word to him. And by that word, he defines and shapes his relationship with Abram. He gives Abram a word of promise. Now notice what we read here. This, these words become the focal point of his life. He leaves and takes his family simply because God has told him to do that. And this is the a pivotal point in all of human history, reaching from 2000 BC onward into the eternal kingdom of God, because God spoke to Abram, and Abram listened. He listened, he heard, he believed, he acted. Words do all of that. God's words do all of that. Uh, again, chapter 15, just a couple of Chapters on, which one page turn in my Bible. After these things, the word of Yahweh came to Abram in a vision. That's kind of a dynamic phrase. The word of God came to Abram in a vision, saying, Do not fear, Abram. I am a shield to you. Your reward will be very great. And uh, a dialogue starts up. Uh, Abram's wondering what reward he has since he has no children. And he's like 1,500 years old. No, he's not that old, but he's very, very old with an infertile wife. And so uh, 
verse 4, Behold, the word of Yahweh came to him, saying that this Eliezer will not be your heir, but one comes forth from your own body shall be your heir. So look towards the heavens, count the stars if you're able, and then the text pauses, because God means him to start doing that, start counting the stars. And then he says, so shall your seed be. And verse 6, then he believed in Yahweh, and he counted it to him as righteousness. Now, what does that mean? He believed the feelings he had about Yahweh? He believed his experience about Yahweh? No, he had words from Yahweh. His heart and mind were focused on those words. And the Hebrew text suggests that he said amen to those. The, the verb for uh, believe is the, word, uh, is the uh, Hebrew word we get amen from, amen. He said amen to what God said. He trusted it, and he was counted righteous. Now, I want to suggest these two men are a model for us in how to know God and how to know God's truth. Adam, the first model, tells us about us as human beings. God's word comes to us first, revealing God's truth to us about ourselves and about God. God's word brings God's lordship to bear on us in a personal way when he speaks in his word to us and puts him as Lord and us as his creatures and his servants. This is how God speaks to us. This is how God spoke to Adam. Abram shows us how to have a relationship with God. God initiates the relationship by speaking his word. We, we don't have any suggestion that Abram was looking for God or searching for God, or certainly not reasoning his way to God or reading philosophy books about God. God comes to him and speaks words to him. A- A- Abraham, as far as we see, Abram does not have a surge of feelings or emotions and put his trust in those feelings or emotions. He doesn't... Uh, uh, go through a philosophical lecture and trust in the conclusion of that philosophical lecture, that, that syllogism. Uh, God doesn't drop the actual land and a bunch of kids in front of him and say, there you go, and Abram simply has to believe in the results. No, he simply gives him his word. Yahweh simply gives Abram his word. He will believe it or he won't. He will accept it or he'll reject it. He'll depend on it or he'll depend on something else. But Abram believes it, he accepts it, he depends on it, and God counts him righteous, which is to say he's right in God's eyes. This is a relationship with God. God speaks, we hear, we believe, we're counted righteous. And as you know, if you've studied the Bible very much, well, this becomes a theme through all of Scripture. It's quoted and referred to a great many times. This is what it is to know God. You hear God's word, you believe God's word, counted righteous because of Christ's work. So, In neither of these cases did God sit down and lay out evidences or proofs or arguments or treat Abram and Adam as if they were his peers. And he certainly did not get into the defendant's box to defend himself. You see, when you ask for testimony, well, you ask that from uh, uh, someone who's accused, someone who has to defend himself. He has to give witness. He has to defend himself. God's not in that position. He doesn't have to defend himself. It is we who need to defend ourselves. He testifies of his truth. He puts them in on the spot. And so we see, that, uh, we, we see that this is what it is to have a personal relationship with God. 
It all hinges on his word. His word is how he approaches us. He doesn't approach Adam with smells or music or gusts of wind. He doesn't approach Abram with feelings or emotions or arguments. In both cases, he approaches with his word. That is the connection point. That's where man meets God. He meets him at his word. And so we see that by description. That's what these narratives tell us and showing us how these two men came to know God. Now let's look at it by prescription, number two, by prescription, which is to say, this is what God says to do. Description tells us what did happen. Prescription tells us what must happen, what God says we must do. I told you that God told, tells us where we need to start. And what does he say? Do we start with human reason? Do we start with evidences? Do we start with philosophy? Do we start with introspection, maybe looking in our hearts to see if we find God there? As many of you know, I was in a, in a cult that believed that for the first part of my life as a, as a teenager at any rate, an adolescent teenager, that believed that God was in all of us. And so the way to know God was look within and find God there. And I looked within. What I saw did not look like God eventually sent me running to Jesus for my very life, what I saw in my heart. That's another subject for another sermon. So what does Scripture say? What does God prescribe? Turn to Proverbs chapter 1. Pretty easy book to find right after uh, Psalms in the middle of your Bible. Next book is Proverbs. So... The introduction to the book, identifying the author and purpose of the book, is the first six verses. And then he announces the theme of the book in verse 7. The fear of Yahweh is the beginning of knowledge. Ignorant fools despise wisdom and discipline. Now just note that right there. I'll leave that hanging there for a second. But the text says, we've been asking the question, where do we start? Wouldn't it be lovely if we had a Bible verse that told us exactly where to start? And my question to you is, what's this if it's not that? The fear of Yahweh is the beginning of wisdom. And 9.10 is at the end of this first series of extended uh, wisdom poems, or odes, I call them. But it, towards the, in the last chapter of them, chapter 9, verse 10, the fear of Yahweh is the beginning of wisdom. And the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. So, the fear of Yahweh is the beginning of knowledge. The fear of Yahweh is the beginning of wisdom. And that is echoed again at the very end of the book, chapter 31, verse 30, that a woman who fears Yahweh will be praised. So, the fear of Yahweh. And what what is the fear of Yahweh? It's not primarily an emotion. Although, if one knows the God of Scripture and is not awed, and, and, and awestruck before him, there's something really wrong in the way we're seeing God. But the fear of Yahweh is that attitude that bows the knee before God and, and sees him as he is, our Lord, and us as we are his dependent slaves and criminals in need of redemption. That's the fear of Yahweh. And this scripture says that's where we start. So the starting place then, according to Scripture, is not, uh, let me just reveal to you the idea that, well, no, I start with human reason and everything has to, has to prove itself to me. Well, that's not Genesis 1, and that's not Genesis 12 or 15, which we just saw. But it is in Genesis. Where is that attitude that says, 
I am the judge of all things. I'll decide what's wrong and right for me. What chapter of Genesis is that? Why, that'd be Genesis chapter 3. And who is the philosopher who made that argument? Why, that would be Satan. (laughs) That would be Satan who said, no, you decide what's right and wrong. God's actually wrong in what he says. His word is actually insufficient. You decide what's right and wrong. Start with you. Well, now here's verses that say the exact opposite, and it's sad that so many Christians don't get this. They, they in effect, go back to Genesis 3 and try to get from Genesis 3 to Genesis 1 or, or 12 or 15. It just won't happen as long as I think I'm God. God's not really going to end up fully being God. Scripture says the way to wisdom and knowledge is to start with a submissive fear of Yahweh, which means submitting to His Word, because that's where He makes Himself known. That's how He makes Himself known. Not by feelings and experiences and shouting and mooing and rolling up and down the aisle and blabbering and made-up words, but by listening to the inspired, inerrant, authoritative Word of God and submitting to it. That's our starting point. And so, that's an that's a all-Bible truth. That's not an Old Testament truth. It's the same thing that's reflected in the verse we all know, Romans ten seventeen. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by reasoning your way to Jesus. A film giving evidence of Jesus. Archaeological studies in Palestine. No, faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God, as you said. The fear of Yahweh is the beginning of knowledge. So that's God's prescription. That's where he says to start. He says to start with Scripture. So is it it a good thing that our church's statement of faith starts with Scripture? Absolutely. That's exactly the right place to start because apart from Scripture, we don't know who God is. And we don't know who Christ is. And we don't know what the gospel is. You say, oh, I wouldn't know by looking at my heart. Well, I'd suggest that on the way to your heart, you stop by Scripture and you will see Gen- uh, Jeremiah 17.9 saying the heart is desperately sick and deceitful. It's deceitful, desperately sick above all things. No, uh, the way to know God is not to trust my heart. It's to trust His Word. The fear of Yahweh is the beginning of wisdom. So, yes, it's the right starting place. Now let's ask the question, Roman numeral true, what is the central truth about Scripture? And we can put it very simply. The central truth about Scripture is this. What Scripture says, God says. Now that's deceptively simple. But knowing that, you know a great deal and you know a lot more than would-be leaders. If you simply get that. What Scripture says, God says. The one and only place to go to find out what God thinks about anything is Scripture. And I can turn that around and say, once I found what Scripture says about anything, I know what God says about it, and what God thinks about it, and what God believes about it. And just as an aside, how much weight would you give to God's opinion? Well, (laughs) being the designer and creator and Lord of everything, I would say that He carries all the weight there is. He's the only opinion that matters. Everything else is, at best, guesswork, with no foundation in eternal freefall, only God knows, really knows, and only the person who rests on God's Word can have true knowledge. So, what Scripture says, God says. Turn to Matthew chapter 19. So some Pharisees come to Jesus testing Him. (laughs) That always ends well. 
they, they come to him testing him and saying, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any cause at all? Now, this is a little subtle if you've never been walked through this, so, so stay with me here. And he answered and said, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, for this cause a man shall leave his father and mother and shall cleave to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. He who created them made them male and female and said they shall become one flesh. Okay, well, who created the male and female? Not a trick question. Who created the male and female? Well, that, that would be God. So who said for this cause a man shall leave his father and mother and so forth? Who said that? Well, God said that. However, when you look for the source of that quotation, it takes you back to Genesis 2.24. And when you look at that, it is not there as a word from God. Just note this down if it's not already written down for you. Genesis 2.24. It's not there as a word from God. It's there as Moses' comment. It doesn't say, then God said for this cause. It's just, it's, it's a remark of the author, and the author was Moses. So Moses says that. But wait a minute. Moses says that, but Jesus said that God says that. The same person who created man, male and female, said, leave your father and mother, become one flesh. Well, what does that mean then? He's, he's quoting something Moses wrote in Scripture as being the Word of God. So what does that mean? It means that what Scripture says, God says. Whoever the human writer is, if it's Scripture and it's taught by Scripture, then it's the Word of God. There's a one-for-one one equivalent between what Scripture teaches, what it affirms, and what God says. What Scripture says, God says. Behind Moses' voice is the voice of God. A second example, Hebrews 3.7. Boy, this is very powerful. Uh, I would turn there if I were you. And since I'm just me, I'll turn there. Hebrews chapter 3. This is so powerful today. This is so powerful in a, in a Christian world surrounded by charismatic error and the error of the Blackabees and others who, uh, whether intentionally or not, um, lower the authority and the sufficiency of the Word of God and raise up experiences and emotions and feelings. I want to hear the Holy Spirit speak to me. Every Christian should want to hear, hear the Holy Spirit speak to him. That's absolutely, absolutely right absolutely necessary, absolutely true. How do you hear the Holy Spirit speak to you? Well, look at Hebrews 3, 7, and he says, therefore, just as the Holy Spirit says, now you grammarians, what, what tense is that word says? Past, present, future. Present. So this is what the Holy Spirit's saying right now, right? Don't need to go to seminary for that. This is what the Holy Spirit is saying right now today, sitting here. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me, as in the day of trial in the wilderness, and so forth. Oh, wait a minute, in my Legacy Standard Bible, that's all in capital letters. Does that mean I'm supposed to shout when I read that out loud? Why is it all in capital letters? It's a quotation from the Old, from the, from the Old Testament? Old Testament? But he says that's what the Holy Spirit says today. So how can the Holy Spirit today be saying something from Psalm 95 in the Old Testament. Because that's the Word of God. And, oh, I don't know, you could put it this way. Whatever Scripture says, God says. Including Psalm 95. And because God doesn't change, this is still what God says. 
He said it, he says it, he will say it. So this is the word of the Holy Spirit. You want to hear the Holy Spirit speak? This has been often said. You want to hear the Holy Spirit speak? Read Scripture. You want to hear him speak out loud? Read Scripture out loud. But that's where we find the voice of the Holy Spirit. And that's, that's what Scripture says. So what Scripture says, God says. It's the voice of the Spirit speaking to us here now at this moment. So some reflections on that. Many men have tried to water this truth of Scripture down. Uh, many, uh, sadly, many clergymen, many professors, many erstwhile leaders. For instance, one thing they've said about in their, in their teaching about the Bible's inspiration, they've, tried to, they've said, well, the, the writers were inspired. God showed them his ideas, but then they wrote those ideas down in their own words. And of course, to err is human. So there's errors in Scripture because humans wrote Scripture. But everything we just read is about Scripture. It's not about the intention of the writer. It's, it's Scripture that is the Word of God, not the intention of the writer. We don't have that. That's gone forever. The only thing we have of that is Scripture. And we've just read again and again, and we'll read more, that that is what's the Word of God. That is the Word of God, what they wrote. Uh, others have said, well, their ideas were inspired, but their words were not expi- inspired. Well, same answer. Scripture gives authority to the words. When Jesus wants to answer these Pharisees, he goes to the words of Scripture. Jesus never, ever plays down the importance or authority of the words of Scripture uh, any more than his own words. And some have said, this is existentialism, that God uses the Bible uh, above and beyond his words. It's not really the words, but we read those words, and then we have an encounter with God as we read them. That's not the words, but it's, it's something that is... Oh, you can't put it into words. It's so deep and wonderful and, and esoteric. But again, we've just seen again and again that it's the words at which God makes contact. Yes, we do want to have an encounter with God, a personal encounter with God. And the way we do that is through His words. That's how God reaches out to us. You want an encounter with God on God's terms, that's His terms. You don't want that, then I've got nothing to give you except a call to repent. Because that's the only way to know God on his terms. Everything else is an idol. Everything else is an idol. So scripture teaches an identity between the words of scripture and the words of God. What scripture says, God says. And that central test, uh, truth is attested, letter B in your outline. It is attested in a number of ways. I'm going to call three key witnesses out of hundreds. The first witness is well known, 2 Timothy 3.16. 2 Timothy 3.16, many of you could probably quote that, or at least pretty close from memory. All Scripture, the LSB has it the best probably, Legacy Standard Bible Translation. All Scripture is God-breathed and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. It goes on to say that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped, fully equipped for every good work. So, God breathed, this verse said, the Greek word theopnostos, and it literally means God breathed. In other words, Scripture is a product of the, of the breath of God. As if for, for whatever reason, if somebody were to transcribe this sermon word for word, what you would have in that manuscript, for good or ill, would be Dan breathed. It would be the words that came from my heart, that were breathed out through my mouth. And so notice to all those other theories of inspiration we just danced over? What is it that's God breathed? 
the thoughts of the writers, the ideas of the writers, our encounter with God, what's God breathed? Scripture. And Scripture is a written thing, pasagraphe, all written thing. This writing is God-breathed. It's the writing, the words. Paul had just said that since you were a child, you've known the hieragramata, the holy letters, very literally, meaning Scripture. So, the words of Scripture. Second witness, 2 Peter 1, 20 and 21. I encourage you to turn there. Now, you, you could look at different Bibles and see many different translations of these. The Legacy Standard Bible is one of the good ones. A lot of controversy over what the, these verses mean, but what they mean is really fairly simple. Uh, help if I look at Second Peter and not First Peter, although First Peter is good. Here we go. Know this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes by one's own interpretation. And don't think that by prophecy he just means the predictive parts. All of Scripture is prophetic. It's all spoken from God, whether it predicts or not. It's all, it's all the Word of God through a man. No prophecy of Scripture comes by one's own interpretation. In other words, it's not produced by the thinking of the human author. He didn't dream it up or reason his own way to it by himself. It doesn't come from human interpretation uh, or untangling or unwrangling. Verse 21, for no prophecy was ever made by the will of man, but men being moved or more literally carried by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. So this is the words of Scripture as written, and, the, and it speaks particularly to the origin of Scripture. And the origin of Scripture ultimately is not the thinking of the writer. God's Spirit shines through the word and thinking of the writer like the sun shining through a beautiful stained glass window, to borrow an example that a, a great theologian named B.B. Warfield used. But God constructs that window so that what he says through that human author is exactly his word and what he wants to say. They're not robots, but they are servants of God. And the words they choose and the thoughts they have are Results of the carrying of the Holy Spirit, so that, what does Peter say? What did they do? Men being moved by the Holy Spirit did what? Spoke from God. So this isn't about the interpretation, but it's about the origin of Scripture. It has its origin not in human untangling, but in the ministry of the Holy Spirit, carrying the writers so they spoke God's Word. Now, my third witness is, is a strange witness. I suppose if we were in, the, in a courtroom, I would have to call this a hostile witness. We go to Genesis chapter 3. And in Genesis chapter 3, we read, Now, the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which Yahweh God had made. So this introduces us to the fact that he's got his own plans and his own shifting, uh, shifty um, goals. More crafty than any other beast. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said, You shall not eat from any tree of the garden. So now, a, a general who wants to win a war, where is he going to concentrate on his heavy art artillery? Where is, gonna, where is he going to concentrate his heavy artillery. 
The place that's going to do the most damage, obviously, and it, it might very well be a supply line or something like that, but he, he doesn't want to just waste all of his artillery picking off individual soldiers. He wants to do something that will do the greatest damage. So where does Satan concentrate his heavy artillery? On the Word of God. Has God said? Of all the things he could have started with, he starts there. And as you read on what he goes on to say, everything he says is crafted to what end? To destroy their confidence in God's Word. To destroy their submission to God's Word. And yes, you could say, and you'd be absolutely right, that he, he slanders the character of God, the goodness of God, the love of God, the wisdom of God, even the truthfulness of God. He does all those things. But how does he do it? By impugning the Word of God. He attacks the Word of God. And as I say, this is a hostile witness that bears witness to the fact that Scripture is the basis of everything in relation to God. Scripture is where everything rests. His first word, has God said, questions God's word. His second word, you shall not truly die, contradicts God's word. But the target is God's word. Because God's word is where God and man connect. That's the point of connection. And if Satan can destroy that, then he shears us off from our Creator. And indeed, He did. And if it weren't for the, the love of God, the sovereign grace of God in His redeeming plan in Christ, that would be the end for us right there. It's only because of God that anyone still knows God today. And by the sovereign grace of God that any of us are people of God today. But that's where He focused His, his weapons, and that's still where He focuses His weapons. False teaching resting Scripture, destroying people's confidence in Scripture, and even often by good things, such as these churches which imagine they're still receiving semi-revelation from heaven by so-called prophecies in tongues. And if that has the effect of getting our attention off of the Word of God alone, well, they'll take it. That's still a victory. So, uh, if you can, you know, basically his attitude is, if I can destroy that connection by God's Word, then, you know, the trout's in the creel. Might as well fire up the barbecue because <laughs> this is done. We're done. And indeed, that's what he did. So that's the central truth attested. Now let us see the central truth unfolded. Say a few more things about Scripture that you can see in our statement of faith. I'll show you from Scripture. Central truth unfolded. First of all, Scripture is inerrant or infallible. Let me talk about what those now let's go to the verse, then we'll talk about what the words mean. John 10, 34 and 35. Uh, again, a controversy with the unbelieving Jews. And um, they're offended about something as usual and his claims to divinity and being God's son. And so he says, has it not been written in your law, I said you are God's? Now, if he called them gods to whom the word of God came and the scripture cannot be broken, dot, 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 well, that's where we're going to stop because that's our point. What does he quote here? A tiny little clause in a little psalm. Psalm 82 and not even all of verse 6. I said you are gods. And then he says of that little clause, what does Jesus say? Scripture, what? Cannot be broken. 
Well, sure, the Ten Commandments, those are authoritative. Yeah, that's big. In Psalm 23, we love that. But a little bitty verse and a little bitty psalm, even that? Yeah. Now, we've got a saying. A, a chain is only as strong as its what? Weakest link. And what's Jesus saying here? There's no weak links in Scripture. Every link has the same strength because every link is the Word of God. And so it cannot be broken. Why can't it be broken? Because it's the Word of God. So God cannot lie. God cannot err. Scripture cannot deceive. Scripture cannot be wrong. It's just as simple as that. If you say the Bible is God's Word, then you must say that it is inerrant and infallible. Unless you can imagine saying, sure, it's God's Word, but it still might be wrong. By what authority? By what superior authority? What, what authority superior to God are you going to bring in to show that God erred? If it's the Word of God, it can't err. And that error, that's what those words are. Inerrant, meaning that it is free from error. Now, Scripture has errors. And before you run me out of the church, what I'm saying is, it has Satan saying you shall not die. Is that an error? Well, that's an error. That's in, it's in Scripture. But does Scripture teach it? <laughs> no, it does not. The fool said in his heart, there is no God. That's in Scripture. Is that an error? It's an error, but Scripture doesn't teach it. That's what we need to say. Scripture teaches only truth. It teaches no errors. In any part of Scripture, it teaches no errors. And some people have actually, in the history of this doctrine, trying to water it down, they've, they've fled to the word infallible. They think that that is uh, a better word because to them they think, well, that means it might have errors, but it's still it's a good source of doctrine and morals. But the trouble is the word infallible means incapable of error. <laughs> if anything, it's a stronger word. And it's true. Scripture is both. It doesn't contain any errors, and it can't contain any errors. And when I say contain, it can't teach any errors because it is the Word of God in everything it teaches. So, um, it's, in, it's inerrant and infallible, John 10, 34 and 35. It's also morally binding. James 4.17, hear this word. Therefore, to one who knows to do the right thing and does not do it, to him it is sin. Have you ever thought deeply about that verse? I, I would encourage you to. To him who knows the right thing to do and doesn't do it, to him it is sin. So you hear a word from God and you know what God thinks about any given thing. And let me just say as an aside, Everything in Scripture is a commandment. What? It's not all commandment. I mean, sure, you know, thou shalt not commit murder. That's a commandment. But in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. How's that a commandment? Well, it's a commandment to me to how to think about the origin of the universe. This is how God says the universe originated. So I must think that too if I'm going to submit to the Word of God. He created them male and female. Help me with the math here. That's how many sexes? That's one, male. That's female, two. We're done. So that's a command. I must submit my judgment to that. Do you see what I'm saying? Everything in Scripture is a commandment. So James says to him who knows the right thing to do and doesn't do it, to him it's sin. So I've heard a word from God. What do I have to do in order to sin? Nothing. Just don't submit to it. 
don't bow my knee to it. If it tells me to think something, don't think it. If it tells me to do something, don't do it. Go to church, I don't have to. Love your wife, I don't have to do that either. On and on and on, I don't have to. Well, you didn't do anything, but you sinned. I sinned. To him who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to him it is sin. Why? Because all of Scripture is morally binding. Because when I hear a word from God, I am morally obligated to submit to it because it's God's word. I'm morally obligated to bow the knee to it. That's not true of any human being, but it's true of God. So uh, whether it's something God tells me to do or something God tells me to think, uh, I'm obligated. Scripture says that there's only one way of salvation. I'm obligated to submit myself to that. Only one God, I'm obligated to submit myself to that. And so forth and so on. Why? It's just as simple as this. The way I respond to what Scripture says is the way I respond to God. Why? Because what Scripture says, God says. So inspiration involves, number one, the whole canon. What's the canon? It's the list of authoritative books. And we have a list starting with Genesis and ending with Revelation. So that's the canon. The whole canon only. And that's in the canon. Jesus affirms the authority of the canon in Matthew 5.18 in the Sermon on the Mount. Where he says, For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. Why must everything in the Old Testament be true according to Jesus? Because it's the Word of God. It can only be accomplished because it's the Word of God. And, that, and he knows what the canon is. He knows what books are in the Old Testament. Now, there's, a, there's a, a verse that says this, but it takes a little explaining. Matthew 23, 35. Almost in passing, Jesus speaks of all the righteous blood shed on earth from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah. Well, it's A to Z. I mean, that's kind of cool right there. But it really is A to Z in another sense. The, the books of the Old Testament were not arranged like our English Old Testament. Same books, but a different order. With us, Genesis is the first, Malachi is the last. In the Hebrew Old Testament, Genesis is the first, and the last book is Second Chronicles. Now, again, that's another subject, but that's just, that's just the fact. Okay, so who's Abel? Well, he, he's the first martyr, isn't he? In, found in what book? Where do we read about Abel? Genesis. Who's Zechariah? Well, he's the last martyr we read about. Where do we read about him? Second Chronicles. So when Jesus says from Abel to Zechariah, he's like saying, like we would say from Genesis to Revelation. Uh, he's saying from Genesis to Second Chronicles. The whole Old Testament. So when Jesus speaks about the inspiration of the Old Testament, he's speaking about the same Old Testament we've got. It's not made up later by a church council. It was already known when Jesus walked the earth. The New Testament is spoken of prospectively the same way. In other words, before it was written, a number of verses, I'll just pick out two. John 16, verse 13, uh, 14, yes, 13. Jesus is speaking to the apostles about the ministry of the Holy Spirit to them. And he says, but when he, the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. 
For he will not speak from himself, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will disclose to you what is to come. You, you apostles. We've seen this in Matthew in our recent studies. This is a promise to the apostles that the Holy Spirit will guide them into all the truth. And the, Old, the New Testament is all either written by apostles or by, by people associated with apostles, uh, connected the ministry of apostles. And that's why Paul can say in 1 Corinthians 14, 37, if anyone's a prophet or spiritual, he must acknowledge the things that I write, that they are the commandment of the Lord. So the apostles knew they were writing the word of God. And if Paul says in Ephesians 2.20 that the church is based, it's built, <clears throat> pardon me, it's built on what? What foundation? The foundation that is laid by the apostles and prophets. Their teaching, their writing that we have in Scripture, that's the firm foundation that we rest on. The apostles and prophets. The Old Testament, Jesus said, was inerrant, infallible, uh, and eternal and the New Testament that he announced would be written through his apostles. So all of the canon and the canon only is inerrant, infallible, morally binding. Every part of the canon equally, letter B, every part of the canon. Now that's that word plenary that you will find in our statement of faith. And plenary is just a word we don't use very often, but it means full. And the, the idea is very simple. Don't, don't tense up. The idea is very simple. Every part of Scripture is equally inspired. Now, this is something that has been, again, hit at by enemies of biblical faith. They say, well, no, the moral parts, yeah, they're inspired, and the spiritual parts are inspired, but the historical parts aren't as important, and they contain errors. Numbers, and of course, the creation account, and the flood, and all that stuff. A bunch of errors there. Now, there's two troubles with that. Oh, no, no, there's many, many troubles with that. But two I'll mention. The one, just by the way, is that all of those spiritual and moral truths are built on historical events in Scripture, like the gospel, for instance. What does the gospel rest on? The history of what Jesus did on the cross. If he didn't die on the cross, there's no gospel. And so uh, that's one. But then the other is that Scripture simply, every part in Scripture is treated equally as being inspired by God. Just go to Jesus' answer to the Pharisees. When they ask him about divorce, what does he do? He goes back to Genesis 1 and 2, literally interpreted as being the creation of man and the creation of marriage. So no, all of it is equally the Word of God. You can't pare off parts and say, well, no, not the historical, only the moral. No, everything in Scripture, everything it teaches is the Word of God. Its inspiration is plenary. It's full. And let us see every word in that canon equally. Uh, our statement says verbal. Plenary verbal inspiration, meaning just as we've talked about, the words, not just the ideas. Read Psalm 119, which exhausts the Hebrew language for synonyms of, of the Word of God. You never get from Scripture a low view of the words of God because they're God's words. Number three, these qualities apply to the original text. Now, you may not immediately see the importance of this, but it is. This has been a hot point of criticism of the Christian faith, and it's good to be at least somewhat prepared about this. It applies to the original text, not the original manuscripts. Let me explain what I mean by that. It's not the manuscripts that are inspired. It's the original text, what was written on them, that is expired. 
Now, you know we have copies. Of, we, don't, we don't have a, a, a Bible bound like this, you know, from the first century that has all the books in it. We don't have that. What we have is copies. We have manuscripts, some of them full, some of them just fragments. We have a rich, rich array, thousands of Greek manuscripts attesting to the New Testament in part, or um, some of them were complete. But the inspiration is in the text, not the manuscript. So let me give you an example. This is, this is very simple. Just stay with me. Suppose I read a sentence to you, and you all write it down perfectly. Every last one of you writes it down perfectly, and then I destroy my manuscript that I wrote the sentence on. Do we have what I said? Well, yes, we do. We don't have the original manuscript, but we've got it in everything you copied. Because what matters in this illustration is the text, not the manuscript. And that's the case with the Bible as well. So, uh, suppose I read to you a sentence from my sermon notes, and every one of you copies it faithfully, but there's minor differences between your copies. Like, for instance, I say the word there, and some of you think I'm saying there, and some of you think I'm saying there, and some of you think I'm saying there. Because there's three English words that sound exactly the same. And so you have three different spellings among the different copies. Or I say two, and some of you think I mean two. Some of you may think I mean two, and others of you think I mean two. Because there's three English words that sound like two, and they're spelled in different ways. So you all have that, and then my manuscript is destroyed. I don't have the manuscript, but do I have my sermon? Yes, I do. <clears throat> it's witnessed among it's contained in the copies and the notes that you made faithfully, but with, with mistakes, faithfully writing it down. Now, in Scripture, we have a rich... We have documents attesting to the text of Scripture like no other ancient document, and it's not even close. It's not even remotely close. We have testimony to Scripture unlike any other book. And the differences among them, most of them are like there, 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 or two, two, two. They're mostly just like that. They're a letter. They're a little thing. They're inconsequential. So do we have the original manuscripts? Not yet. It'd be cool if we did one day. I'd love that. But do we have the original text of Scripture? Yes, we do. We have the original text in those copies. And does it matter if the original was inerrant? Yes, it does. Because an, an errant original would just give errant copies. But the copies we have are of an inerrant original, the Word of God. So we'll close with the central truth brought home from Hebrews 4:12 through 13. I'll read it and just make a few brief comments. For the Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit, of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And there is not and there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are uncovered and laid bare to the eyes of him to whom we have an account to give. So what do we do as Christians? We examine Scripture. We look to see what is in Scripture. Uh, and the message of this section is that the Israelites all had the Word of God. They all had it, but they didn't listen to it. They didn't believe it. We examine Scripture that we might believe in it, and at the same time we do that, Scripture examines us. It is sharper than any two-edged sword and pierces right to the very heart of us. Right to the very heart of us. That's what Scripture does. 
because it is not dead words on a page, as some have blasphemously said, even wearing the uh, t-shirt of a Christian. Uh, It's not dead words on a page, it's living, this says, and if we don't hear it, the problem isn't Scripture, it's us. If we don't hear Scripture, it's not Scripture that's dead, it's us who are dead. It is we who are dead. And His Word is not idle or impotent, it's active. And if it isn't doing anything in our lives, it's because we're not believing it and submitting to it as the Word of God. And His Word is not dull or irrelevant, it's sharper than any two-edged sword. And if we haven't felt the cut, again, it's either because we're not attending or because it's so sharp. Have you ever been cut by a razor blade? And you didn't even know it until you saw all the blood. That's what the Word of God does with us. It's sharper than a razor blade. And it pierces down to the very heart of us. So in His Word, God reaches out to you and to me. In His Word, God reaches out to us, just as He did with Adam when he woke up to hear the voice of God. Just as He did with Abram. And to you, He says, this is who I am and this is who you are. And this is how to know me. This is how to have a relationship with me. What separates us, this word says, is your sin and your rebellion. What I've done about that, this word says, is I have sent my son Christ Jesus into the world to save sinners. What you must do, this word says, is you must repent and believe in the Lord Jesus. Hear the gospel. Understand the gospel. See that the gospel is true and rest your whole weight on it. And when you do, this word says, all of your life will change. And I have to flip that on its other side because we're in the South where everyone thinks he's a Christian. Most people are wrong. If it hasn't changed, then it's probably because you have not believed the word. If your church-going habits and Bible-reading habits are the same as the world, probably because you're the world and not a Christian. I mean, here's a test. Many people can listen to this sermon and say, amen, 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 I believe every word. And then I would ask this question, if we were going to go to court, would you be able to bring enough evidence from the last week to show how much the Bible means to you? Oh, that's a sharp sword. But you see, it's of no use to us if it doesn't show itself in our lives. It is living and powerful and active, and it either changes us or it judges us, you see. So what is the Bible? It is God's Word to us. And therefore, it's the only entirely reliable starting place for all of my thinking. It's the only place to start. It contains every word we need from God about anything affecting our lives. And in it, God comes close to us and offers Himself to us in His Word, And he leaves us with two choices. We either reject his word and live in an ongoing moral, spiritual, intellectual free fall that eventually ends in hell, or we submit to his word and know what it is to be saved by the Lord Jesus Christ and to walk with the Lord Jesus Christ. My prayer is that every one of you would do the latter. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this, your word, for its truth, its power. We do pray for the gracious ministry of the Holy Spirit, helping each of us to hear this word personally, as you do speak to us each personally, where we are 
from your word. And those who are far from you, who don't know you, may they hear the shepherd's voice calling them to come to Jesus. And may they come. And to those in need of encouragement to see how wonderful it is to rest on this firm foundation that you will give them hope and encouragement. All of us, we pray that you'll direct us to live lives that bear out the truth of our profession, that what Scripture says, God says, and we would hear what God says. In Jesus' name, amen.